0: One point that Joyce brings up that I think is really important there is just really that design is for everyone, right? You don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a scientist, right? Anyone can get into the field of design. And the whole point is for all of us to be designing together. So it really is a collaborative space, and we sort of welcome everyone into
1: it. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about frame of mind. How can art bring us hope, joy, and a sense of wellness? It makes us feel
0: connected. It makes us feel loved.
1: Your whole soul opens up. Art saved my life and kept me out of trouble, kept me on the right path. We're tapping into the minds of people who have deeply connected with art in their own lives to find out how art can be a tool for well-being. Join us in listening to their stories on Frame of Mind, an art and wellness podcast from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi listeners, thank you so much for joining, and in today's episode, we're talking about health design, one of my favorite topics. My two guests are Drs. Joyce Lee and Christy Schein. Joyce Lee may be my first ever guest who is a diabetologist. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a physician who's an endocrinologist who specializes in diabetes, She identifies as a physician, a designer, a researcher, and she's the Robert P. Kelch Research Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Michigan. You can read all about her really fantastic work via website www.doctorasdesigner.com. Christy Schein, MD, PhD, is a no-joke research scientist emergency physician. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine here in Philadelphia at Thomas Jefferson, She directs the scholarly inquiry track at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College. She holds graduate degrees in mechanical engineering, medical engineering, and medical physics. Now, Joyce and I first met indirectly at Stanford MedX, and then more directly via social media. I guess she's a fritter, a friend that I made on Twitter. I love her posts, and we share the same undergraduate experience, i.e. Brown University. Christy is my colleague friend here at Thomas Jefferson in Philadelphia, and we talk a lot about health design, and she's been instrumental in some of my own learning. Let's get to the conversation where I've posed a question. Well, you'll hear it. You're both physicians. You're both researchers. And correct me if I'm wrong, Christy, you may have been a designer before becoming a physician, and Joyce, you may have been a physician before before becoming a designer, or do you see those as happening simultaneously? Christy, why don't you take it first and then Joyce?
0: Sure. So um, prior to uh, the MD-PhD life, I actually worked in industry for Johnson & Johnson and designed some spinal implants there. Um, From that, I specifically went into tissue engineering, looking to design better biological options for Uh, spine and other wound healing problems, and then actually went to medical school following that. So it's been a long journey, but sort of there's been elements of research and design that kind of permeate and medicine really throughout the the whole thing.
2: And then I guess what I would say is I am a physician, and I really embrace, you know, the method of design, but I want to be totally transparent about the fact that I don't have formal training in design. So I think some of the work that we have done at Michigan Medicine here is really tried to disseminate the, the, the concept and the power of design thinking to a broader group of individuals acknowledging that you may not have the official title, but with whatever role you have inside the health system, you have a really great opportunity to design better systems.
0: One point that Joyce brings up that I think is really important there is just really that design is for everyone, right? You don't have to be a engineer. You don't have to be a scientist, right? Anyone can get into the field of design. And the whole point is for all of us to be designing together. So it really is a collaborative space and we sort of welcome everyone into it.
1: I love that. And I love that transparency, Joyce. I am really... Like design thinking and the iterative approach to brainstorming and prototyping. And, you know, let's try to figure out uh, before it rolls out as a final product or as a final workflow or as a final education program. It makes a lot of sense. Even though we don't always get it right, it's a better final product than maybe it would have been had we not used design thinking. And you, Joyce, uh, were part of an article that came out in Fast Company. talking about the most urgent matters facing design today. What do you think are some of the most urgent matters facing design today?
2: I mean, I think uh, there are so many challenges in healthcare. Where do we begin, right? But I, but the focus of, of that piece was really on data, um, right? We are swimming in data. We have electronic health records. We have uh, patient portals, right? We have applications that are linking into a lot of health data now, and so I think there is such an opportunity for the enterprise, whether it's patients, providers, administrators, et cetera, to to really take advantage of that data, learn from it, and apply new knowledge or engineer new solutions to address some of the problems that we have, but I will say that it it is a bear, right? I actually spend a lot of time designing data, thinking about the optimal design of data for research systems, for... Quality improvement for operations, um, and often we operate in silos, and we are uh, perhaps squandering our efforts uh, working with data that's very imperfect um, and doesn't talk to each other. So, I think that's one of the areas that I work in in health information technology. How do we how do we present data to individuals? How do we get it to be more accessible? How do we help them interpret it? But most importantly, how do we help individuals take action with whatever they learn from that data? Um, So I actually do spend a lot of time right now uh, doing a lot of uh, dashboard work with enterprise data for pediatricians and helping them learn about their populations and helping them understand where they have opportunities to improve.
1: I believe we saw this real time, some of the data challenge with COVID. Did you see that? And what would be examples of, you know, the COVID, either transmission of information, COVID vaccinations? You know, I, I've i seen you write and speak a little bit on this.
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, COVID brought to light the importance of data, right? I think we're probably all a bit more as a public, a little bit more data literate because because the data tells the story of how we're doing as a society or as a country, right? But I will say that the reporting systems are Pretty complicated and very primitive in many ways, right? because you have different uh, regulatory bodies asking for data on vaccinations or on infections or on hospitalizations, but everyone has a little bit of a different definition, right, and then how do you bring all those definitions together in one place and you know what I think we've a lot of us have witnessed is that there's a lot of Excel spreadsheeting going on to. To integrate that data and/or share that data uh, with larger bodies like the state or, or other regulatory agencies. So, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of technologists doing work on making systems interoperable, right? So the data systems talk to each other, but that is really critical because otherwise you have a lot of humans manually inputting data into a Google Doc or an Excel spreadsheet, um, sending that on, and I think there's something really broken about that process.
1: As an engineer, Christy, does that drive you a little bananas?
0: Actually, it's a really exciting time to be in healthcare and to be in um, the world of design. I think there's a lot of challenges that we see that are coming up because of the pandemic. We see a lot of challenges, no doubt, in the EMR and in other places. Um, And I think those are all kind of opportunities for us to take a look at the environment around us and really find ways to bring about change.
1: Christy, what are you working on now? Sure. So some of the
0: research that I'm working on now is in the 3D printing space. So really trying to understand the infrastructure of 3D printing in the U.S. So during COVID, we saw there was this incredible movement of people using 3D printing In multiple ways, not just in our traditional ways of perhaps um, planning a surgery or helping patients to understand their physician in the informed consent process, but other things like making PPE, fixing PAPR devices, you name it, and it was kind of done in this maker style movement for COVID, but really don't understand who and what is doing this in hospital-based systems around the U.S. And so part of my research now is looking at that infrastructure and trying to understand um, what do we have available for 3D printing? How can we kind of pull that network together in the future um, and share our resources? And then second to that is really looking at how do we know if 3D printing Um, is doing what we think. So anecdotally, you hear stories all the time that surgeons love using 3D prints in planning their surgeries and that patients love having the models in front of them during their informed consent process because they just understand when they can see it and hold it and kind of feel it in real life. Um, But what we're finding is we haven't well quantified or qualified that. So that's part of my research now is to look at better understanding how are we doing in the world of 3D printing before just kind of moving forward.
1: During the intensity of the pandemic when you were printing PPE, be it masks or other protective devices, how did you iterate and who did you bring in to give feedback and brainstorm? Sure. So um,
0: this is, uh, of course, something that all of my colleagues and I were involved in, in the health design lab. So Bon Koo, Rob Pulisi, Morgan Hutchinson, um, all of these are individuals in the lab who kind of helped out in various aspects of um, the pandemic. And some of the things we looked at as a group were how do you mobilize care to deliver uh, testing or vaccines um, we looked at other things related to 3D printing, for example, fixing paper devices. Um, we tried to uh, make other products. Bond was involved in trying to make a uh, ventilator that can be used out of very simple equipment. Um, we had another colleague who was working on making um, Uh, these kind of protective apparatus for individuals who were intubating patients and there was a close contact with the person who had COVID. So lots of different kind of creative um, ways of making things. One of the things I was most involved in was 3D printing of COVID testing swabs. So early in the pandemic, a lot of the swabs were coming out of the areas most affected around the world, um, and we had a supply chain issue. And so one of the things we did was actually convert our 3D printing space into a 3D printed COVID testing. uh, We converted our space into a 3D printed... Uh, nasopharyngeal swab that can be used to detect COVID-19. And so we actually partnered with a group in South Florida to work together and conducted kind of, we were a site in a national um, multi-site uh, trial that looked at whether or not these 3D printed COVID swabs were equally as effective as our traditional flock nasopharyngeal swabs. And thankfully, we found out they were and were able to. were to kind of quickly implement those into clinical care as a result when we did have some supply chain shortages.
1: I love these concrete examples that really demonstrate design and health design. Joyce, design-wise, what did you find yourself focusing on during the intense waves of COVID?
2: Yeah, so I'm a diabetologist, and I will say that telemedicine obviously became our our mandate, right? When we all sort of were home and and no one could go into the clinic. So I think all of us got to probably around 90, 95% telemedicine visits. I think there were a lot of uh, design barriers with regard to implementation, right? Because the system wasn't ready for this. We were flipping technologies. Uh, we um, had to get downloads you know, um, from devices. So like insulin pumps and continuous glucose monitors, there's probably around five or six different platforms that patients use to share that data. We had to implement workflows to get that data to us so that we could actually have effective telemedicine visits in diabetes. So I will say that it was a successful transition. It's, it's calmed down a bit, right? I would say we've probably gone to about 25 or 30% telemedicine visits, although I will say that as a provider, I probably do 60% or more uh, for my patients. But I would say that, again, how do you optimally design for technology? How do you make sure that the most vulnerable patients who perhaps don't have the best access to it or don't or need more assistance with it um, can get access and or do you sort of create, obviously, just the standard in clinic model for some of the patient populations who absolutely just need that modality of care? So I will say that was a big focus, and we've definitely looked at this locally, but also we're doing some evaluation nationally with t Exchange, which is a national quality collaborative focused on type 1 diabetes. So that would be, I would say, one area of focus. And then in terms of other work that we just generally focus on, I'm, I am I am... Very interested in learning health systems for, for child health, but obviously in particular for diabetes. So I have been doing a lot of work with the Caswell Diabetes Institute on how to start with the patient provider workflows and the data flows happening at the point of care and moving all of those tools and data elements the structured elements into back-end databases from which we can actually learn, improve, and manage the care better.
1: I, I love the design in, in workflows, the design in telemedicine, and in fact, the IHI in Boston put out a publication earlier this month, The Importance of Co-Design in Telemedicine. It was a publication that came out this week, and they just talk about um, sort of design by us, designed by us, designed by the patient, how the patient needs to be a part of the process uh, in creating a telemedicine healthcare system, and you touched on a little bit of that, like there's these assumptions that people have a device, that people can can be facile with downloading software, but also do they have reliable Wi-Fi? Like all the parts that are involved with designing a telemedicine patient care workflow.
2: Yeah, I mean, I will say that uh, the portal is a pretty powerful piece of technology. So let's assume that you have difficulty transmitting pump or CGM data, continuous glucose monitoring through these commercial platforms that they usually share with us. So getting a glucose reading every five minutes, right? So we have a ton of data that's potentially accessible through technology. But what I will say is even for the simplest of management strategies, writing down the blood sugars on a piece of paper and taking a picture of it with your phone and submitting it through the portal is a I mean, and that is an effective way to get clinical data that helps inform medical decision making. That lets you go from low fi to high fi, um, and and really helps the patients. You know, I think you know. Obviously, when we go into the clinic, there's some additional sort of signals that we have with regard to management, like we would have a hemoglobin A one C or we would have other other vital signs, right? But I really, it really, you really need data to have an effective visit in diabetes, telemedicine, right? So if you don't have that, it's like, what's the point of doing it? Um, so I will say just thinking about how to meet that patient where they're at. So so I often will make sure to on patient, onboard patients to the portal or onboard patients to uh, the technology systems while in clinic, right? And I actually will not let them leave until they've successfully navigated it. Because Someone just has to get them through that process to see how it is and to allow them to to move forward, right? I think that's one of the biggest abilities of our system. We kind of assume that patients are on their own to do this. There are many health systems that don't necessarily have, you know, a navigator who can help them on board to all this technology. Um, So I think taking the time to really walk them through this can be empowering because, I, again, want to acknowledge that there are patients who don't have the technology or the tools or the Wi-Fi, right? But there are patients who do. They just need to need to be guided through. And so I have seen many extremes. Like I have seen patients who are hard to reach, really struggle, really represent vulnerable populations, but I've been able to connect with them so much easier because they can do it from the comfort of their own home. So I think it's sort of, there's probably a couple different genres of how we can be patient-centered. Uh towards patients with regard to the technology.
1: Christy and I were part of a massive transition that occurred at Jefferson uh, with telehealth. And uh, we moved from mostly inpatient to, uh, sorry, we moved from mostly in-person visits to a lot of telemedicine, unless of course people are so sick, they really, really need to be seen in the emergency department. And we actually worked a bit on seeing the extent to which Patients, untrained patients, could utilize handheld ultrasound to evaluate or to self scan if we used a software that directed them. um, And uh, potentially thinking that in the future there will be opportunities for patients to scan themselves to help clinicians monitor them. And this isn't so far off. We're seeing this in adult patients. Uh, I believe there's work going on in the VA system with. Uh, CHF, congestive heart failure patients. And, you know, ours was starting even more simply with, you know, can, can a lay person, an untrained um, patient, learn how to use a probe, hold a probe, and get some images that the cl- clinician on the other end of the screen can interpret. Uh, Christy, to what extent were you involved with the whole telehealth transition, and, and what are your thoughts regarding design?
0: So prior to the pandemic, I was not a telehealth provider. But like everyone else, sort of, um, you know, the change happens, right? And then you you jump in and you kind of adapt and evolve to meet the needs. And so I started doing telehealth during the pandemic. And one of the things that I noticed that was a problem is really um, two things. Mo- mostly, how do you build rapport and how do you demonstrate empathy in a telehealth environment? That's not my usual way to meet people, right? There's no more handshakes, no more um, sitting on the bed next to a patient and looking into their eyes as you speak to them, right? And letting them know that you care about them. So that was kind of the first problem I noticed. And the second problem was really the language of speaking with patients. So we're used to asking patients questions about their medical history and they're used to answering us. But what they're not used to doing is actually conveying their physical exam information to us using language. So I would have to ask patients to push on their own abdomen and to tell me where they felt tenderness or to um, take their own pulse. And so the language that I use and and the language that the patient used, we're not really used to that. Normally, I would walk into the room and I would feel the patient's pulse or I would examine their abdomen. And so um, it really became this interesting exercise. in how do you kind of Change the language of your physical exam and your history to adapt to that kind of um, uh, telemedicine space. So I found that a really interesting challenge and and one that you'd sort of find unique little workarounds for.
2: So that's really interesting, right? Because because that's not something I struggle with in diabetes care. Like you give me the device data and. I feel like I can help with the medical management, no problem, right? Um, so, like, where did you guys draw the line, right, to the point where you're like, well, uh, you know, the language isn't there, or, like, what's the level at which you can say you really got to come in?
1: It's it's a great question. Um, one of the things that we came up with, um, you know, a lot of our transition work credit goes to Aditi Joshi, and Aditi and I actually were able to put together, like, seven ways to prepare for your telehealth visit. And we published it in the Philadelphia Inquirer because we found some of the same things coming up over and over and over again. You know, um, I'll get to the physical exam piece, but we found people often didn't have their medication list ready or they they, they didn't know what questions we would be asking. And, um, you know, making sure we can confirm their pharmacy. Christy pointed out a really good example, abdominal pain. Abdominal pain is really hard to determine. There's nothing going on via telemedicine and those patients end up often being sent to the emergency department. Um, One of the things that I found interesting uh, with these visits is people sometimes just really wanted to speak. And so even though, as Christy points out, we can't shake hands or there's not that in-person sitting at the bedside, Uh, people just were comforted by having a conversation or reassurance or reiteration of what had been already discussed at a direct uh, in-person encounter or via a prior uh, telemedicine and visit. Yeah, so that sort of talk part I think could be accomplished. The physical exam or, you know, really uh, determining the extent to which uh, there was something deeper going on was a was a bit more more challenging. I think also people would say, well, I have this rash on my foot. And I'd say, well, can you show it to me? And they're like, oh. Whereas, you know, for us, we're like, of course, we're going to want to see it or, you know, have your shoe and sock off. But, you know, certain things become um, obviously t- obvious to us not obvious to the person on the other end. And and there is this artificial uh, barrier that typically it would have been a a smoother, um, undress the patient in, in the department that is different when the person's at home and didn't, Oh yeah, of course you're going to want to see this. Christy, you're shaking your head.
0: Yeah. I had several patients on telemedicine who either had a rash or an ulcer or something else. And just, um, not only, uh, didn't know that they would have to show it or that they could show it on telehealth, but then also figuring out the complication of how do you do that? So for a lot of individuals, especially for older individuals or people with issues with mobility, it's really hard to position themselves or position their camera in a way that can actually show you what you need to see. And so even if patients could, you know, get their foot all the way up to where their computer camera was or bend their, their computer down to kind of show me how to, they position it at the right angle so that I can actually see what I need to see and see the full extent of the wound and see if there's redness extending beyond the edges of their wound. And so that became a real challenge. So not only just that the patient sort of didn't know what to expect, but that maybe you know, our technology is a little bit fixed right now. And most people have a camera perhaps in their smartphone or some other small camera that they connect to their computer. Um, But how do we get these devices in a way that's mobile and easy for a patient to use and actually captures what we need to see best?
2: Well, what I will say about your... Oh, no, I was just going to say about the ultrasound technology. Um, Many, many years ago, people used to say, you can't let patients check their own blood sugar at home, right? Like, um, right. So I do think that you know there's definitely sort of a cultural shift happening, right? Technology is becoming a greater part of the patient domain of expertise, right? So even if it's not um, current state, you know, sort of what you guys are talking about for future state, I, I definitely think is is possible because we've already seen that shift in diabetes care.
1: Yeah, it's not if, it's when, and to your point, often we just have to look and think about other models that have already happened to point to why we believe this is going to happen. I was going to say, I'm curious, you know, both of you are trained researchers and not everybody in the design space is. So how do you think design and designers could um, be better, uh, up their game and think more critically about the work they're doing from a research perspective?
2: So, I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels, right? If you think about sort of that whole line of mixed methods research, there's quantitative and qualitative approaches to perhaps identifying problems or trying to come up with solutions or interventions, right? So, uh, I and then, so what I think is really interesting is one, there are parallels between design and the process of design and quality improvement, right? Which I will say is a science, some people may not call that research, um, but that that in itself is a science of improvement, right? That that relates to operations and improving care. And I think there's a similar thread to, um, you know, prototype a solution, uh, test it out, right? Iterate on it, you know, try again, right? So there's there's I think there's definitely similarities to the process. Although I will say that quality probably tries to optimize more instead of sort of thinking more broadly about upending the system whereas design might be a little bit more imaginative, uh, but perhaps is a little bit less rigorous in the measurement and testing piece, right? So I think that's sort of one, one area. And then I think, too, for like the formal research that's done under research IRBs and and perhaps investigators doing projects that lead to, to funding from NIH or entities like that, I, I mean, I do think that we could benefit from the design community and trying to think more broadly about how we want to develop the the intervention we want to test, right? Because often what happens is that researchers will come and they'll say, here's my intervention, and you have to just do that piece because that's not funded by the the grant agencies, right? Um, But there may be many ill-conceived aspects of it that could have been optimized or better design before you even go into the testing or evaluation or RCT phase uh, if you had used the methods of design to inform that.
0: I think Joyce really hit the nail on the head there. One of the things I think about always is just adding that rigor to the testing piece of design, right? We The, the wonderful thing about design is it does move quickly, it's iterative, um, and sometimes traditional research, being hypothesis-driven, being rigorous, being IRB-controlled, really does take a much longer time. So I do think there are benefits to both, but if we could find a way to add rigor to the testing piece for design. I think you would really start to see design kind of take um, a bigger place in healthcare. I think the other thing that we need to think about um, from traditional research that could help design is really dissemination of information, right? So in design, we're iterative, we're fast, we're moving on, we're doing the next thing and we're forgetting sometimes to actually stop and tell the rest of the world about it. So I do think, um, from the perspective of getting design research published, because it is often qualitative and quantitative mixed together. You know, we're we used to, in journals, kind of separating those things out traditionally in research. And I think we are moving to a, a phase, just as Dre said, where we have more mixed methods research today. And I think as we see more interest in mixed methods research and in publication of it we'll start to see more designers getting into publishing their work sharing with the rest of the world what they're doing um rather than doing what we do best which is kind of to just keep moving on and and, and iterating but to actually stop and tell people about it i think is is a really important step
1: so great you know i ask my guests where did you first find your voice and when did you start using your voice so for each of you i'd like to ask When did you first realize you had a health design voice and when did you start using that? Christy, why don't you take it first, then Joyce?
0: That's a hard question to answer. I think um, my initial inspiration for health design really came from my brother. So, um, unfortunately, he had meningitis as a small child, just about six months old, and, uh, lost a significant portion of his hearing. And so it was being evaluated for the cochlear implant. This is back in the 80s. And, um, really from a young age, I just got really interested in this whole concept of design, augmentation of, uh, the human body in medical applications. And so that really got me at a very young age to kind of get interested in this whole entire world. Um, And then it just kind of spiraled from there, from doing a lot of research, working in the tissue engineering space, to then really thinking about, well, how does this affect patients? And to understanding that sometimes you can make a great product, but if you make that product in the absence of talking to the end user, well, it's not a great product, right? So um, so I think it, over time, it's sort of evolved. And for me, really um, realizing that... That I felt like my research would always be missing that piece of information if I didn't kind of work in the clinical space as well to be talking to patients and and better understanding what their needs were. So I guess that's a long answer to say that it's something that started very early and then has just kind of snowballed as my careers progressed.
2: Yeah, for me, I was already kind of ensconced in my academic career. I had a chance to spend some time at Stanford, and I would say MedX was as part of a sabbatical. But I would say MedEx was pretty instrumental in sort of shifting my view to this world. So definitely have to acknowledge and I'm grateful to the community there for introducing this to me. But I, I think I started exploring it, sort of thought about it as a mom of kids with food allergies who was trying to navigate sort of managing their health conditions, started blogging. And then when I got back to Michigan after my sabbatical, started doing more collaboration with Designers whether that was uh, individuals from the School of Information or the School of Art and Design here at here at Michigan medicine, right? So um, had the opportunity to sort of explore more of that dissemination of the method towards a broader group of health stakeholders.
1: Okay, Theresa wrap up. before we get to that, here's a word from the host and creator of Rebel EM reble stands for Rational, Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. The RISA Wrap-Up. RISA speaking about RISA in third person. Okay. I love this conversation with Joyce and with Christy. And uh, I do think the concept of health design, health designer is very, very interesting. You heard them share their stories. What inspired them in one case, Christy with her brother who had hearing loss, Joyce with her children who had serious food allergies. This inspired them. This motivated them to do the work. What also struck me is both Christy and Joyce have true research and scientific rigor training. They are researchers, and within medicine and within health design, this is pretty unusual. Christy emphasized the importance of publishing and getting things in writing, and what I've learned is no matter what your field, no matter what your industry, putting it in writing is a currency, and it definitely makes a difference. Okay, listeners, see you next week. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.